Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week on Women Who Move Nations, I'm joined by Nicole Rosie, the Chief Executive of the New Zealand Transport Agency. Thanks so much for speaking to us, Nicole. Yeah, hi, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, Really delighted that you've joined us today and really keen to hear from you about your work and your professional achievements and certainly what you've learned along the way. Um, To start with, could you tell us about your current role and your focus areas and how you ended up at New Zealand Transport Agency, which many of us refer to as NZTA. Yeah, um, so my current role is I'm the Chief Executive of Waka Katahi, the New Zealand Transport Agency. So Waka Katahi is our Māori name uh, and we're commonly known as New Zealand Transport Agency or NZTA. So Waka Katahi uh, has multiple roles in New Zealand. Uh, We are Um, often known as responsible for the management of New Zealand's National Highway Network roading infrastructure, the build of that, the maintenance of that, the renewal of that. Uh, We also partner with local government on local roads, but actually we have a much broader function than that. Um, We are New Zealand's land transport regulator. We regulate the roads and the rail for New Zealand. We have an increasing role in rail um, and recently being part of a bid for light rail in Auckland. We partner with local government on public transport in New Zealand and have an increasing role in that. And also um, work with local government to uh, build cycleways, walkways uh, and do innovating streets, which is about new livable urban environments. Um, And on top of that, we're obviously running a transport network uh, with registers and other things that produce a lot of information. So technology is very, very important um, use of information and, and the use of that information to support New Zealand as a thriving economy is a critical part of what we do as well. So it is a very broad role. Um, How have I ended up here? Uh, I've come from a background in the private sector, probably 15 years of work in the private sector in senior executive roles. Yeah, so I came from a background in the private sector. Seven of those years was with Toll New Zealand, which uh, I was on the executive team of at actually at the age of 29. And I joined that organisation at the time New Zealand uh, was splitting its above and below rail operations. Um, So Toll was, um, at the time, the above rail operator for New Zealand, uh, both rail freight, rail passenger metro and long distance passenger, as well as being the second biggest trucking company in New Zealand, as well as running the Inter-Island Ferries for New Zealand. 
So I have quite a deep interest from that time in the executive team um, there in the transport sector. I've also spent time uh, in Fonterra uh, as their global head of health and safety and later in large um, projects predominantly in their manufacturing operations. Before uh, being the chief executive of um, WorkSafe, which is the New Zealand health and safety regulator. So when you think about what is my path to being here, I've had extensive involvement in the transport sector and the private aspects of it in terms of road, rail and um, passenger. Um, I've had a deep um, background in the regulatory side of it. Um, and so I think I have a passion for the combination of all of those things together. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what an incredible, I guess, wealth of experience that you have that you've brought to this role. So Nicole, as you've mentioned, NZTA also has a Māori name and it's Wakakatahi, which I understand is the concept of travelling together as one. Could you talk us through how that concept is applied at NZTA? Yeah, so uh, Wakakatahi is something we're working on at the moment because we're refreshing the strategy of uh, Wakakatahi, New Zealand Transport Agency. But, but the name Wakakatahi actually, uh, I think, uh, was formed at around the time that New Zealand Transport Agency was formed, which I think was about seven or eight years ago. And it really is the concept of um, people joining together at one. A waka is obviously a, a waterborne vessel, but it can be any vessel. So it's about pathways through landscape, movement through landscape, connecting people, connecting places and joining together. And it also has concepts of sustainability, uh, thinking to the future um, and building for the future all contained within it. So Wakakatahi as a concept really encapsulates what we do in the agency, which is about sort of looking to the future, designing for the future, joining and connecting people, places and products together, whilst keeping sustainability um, in the future of New Zealand at our heart. Yeah, that's so great to hear, Nicole. And certainly I know for us in Australia and many countries around the world, we really look to New Zealand, you know, in terms of being a leading example of how you capture your historical and cultural elements in the work that you do. I wanted to ask, so I know that you joined NZTA as the chief executive, uh, I think in mid-February 2020. So, you know, it must have been a bit of a roller coaster time in terms of starting you know, that by the end of March, I know New Zealand was in strict lockdown because of COVID-19 and, and now you've had restrictions lifted in June and people are, are going back to normal within the country and certainly, you know, beginning to, to move around as they used to. And I wanted to ask, you know, from your perspective, how have you found this experience of stepping into this chief executive role and what have you learnt during this challenging time? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, I was um, actually on a roadshow tour of New Zealand and I'd gone to about half of um, about 29 places I think we were going to visit um, before lockdown happened. Um, so it was, uh, you know, a big disruption uh, for everybody for New Zealand um, and in my case, a pretty abrupt end to what was my induction into Wakakatahi in the traditional form, but instead I got a completely different induction. And the great things about disasters, because I'm going to talk about the, the uh, or crises, the, the good things first, is that they give you an opportunity to lead differently and they give you an opportunity to understand organisations much more deeply because you have to, in crisis situations, get into the detail where you normally wouldn't. And so the advantage of uh, the COVID situation for me as a new um, chief executive coming into Wakatahi 
is that we had to do so many things so fast. We had to shut down over 75 construction projects that were operating at the time because unlike Australia, New Zealand completely locked down um, activities all but very essential services. And in our case, that was only keeping the roading network open and some basic public transport um, operating. All of the rest of our operations were shut down. So that was 75 projects. We had to... Um, sort of consider how we managed all the regulatory aspects. In any one week, we have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people looking for vehicle licensing or fitness fitness for work or warrants of fitness. And we put legislation through in literally two weeks to manage that through the COVID period. We had to look at public transport and how we made that safe for people to use. We had to look at our contractor workforce and how we maintained that um, in an environment where there was real risk of loss of jobs um, for, for New Zealand and for our supply chain, which obviously was going to be absolutely essential to re-stimulate the economy post-lockdown. And on every front across our business, uh, there was massive um, uh, sort of regulatory or other system changes that we were considering. At the same time, all of our people were moved to working at home. So it gave me a deep understanding of lots and lots of aspects of our business, as well as a deep understanding of our connections with multiple other parties within government, but also across the public sector, where we've got our providers who work with us to deliver projects. Um, uh, We've got local government. So it was an enormous, um, you know, amount of work, and it was a huge um, impact on the business in the sense of the demand on the business, but at the same time, it was a huge opportunity to both understand the business and to look at resetting this business in a way that we wanted to into what is for all of us a new future. And we were certainly able to do a whole bunch of things that we hadn't previously been able to do. Um, we were able to form a new executive team extremely fast with a new CE. We were able to communicate literally daily. And I did all of organisation calls once a week and one to two daily updates to the whole organisation, as well as weekly Zoom calls with our partners. Um, And so we were communicating in a much more effective, real-time way with our people, with our partners. We did online consultation, something that's never been done. We were able to do very innovative ways of doing things and keeping the business running. So I think it as a leader, of course, a crisis is, is really demanding on people and hard, but actually uh, I think we came through it really well. We, we saw the opportunity in that um, it gave us the opportunity to do lots of things differently, and I think we've taken that opportunity and moved forward very positively. That's so great to hear and great as well, I guess, around looking at it from an optimistic point of view around what are the opportunities and changes that your organisation can make in a very agile way to to respond to what's been a very unprecedented situation. Um, You know, in relation to COVID-19, you know, certainly we've seen public transport in cities around the world be significantly impacted in terms of patronage, but also confidence in using the system. Um, and I know you've spoken about some of the impacts already on of COVID-19 and, and on the different systems and, and, and network impacts that you have there and also on the industry and infrastructure side. But I'm just wondering if you could talk us through a little bit more around, you know, the impact that it has had on public transport across your country. And I guess what's being done or what's the thinking around building in public confidence to to go back to using it again in a way that was seen in pre-COVID times? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there was different approaches for different levels. And I think one of the things New Zealand has done very well through COVID is we were able to respond quite well to the, I guess, the health and safety aspects of uh, the need to be able to safely operate public transport because we had established forums in place, health and safety forums with business leaders so um, before I talk about public transport, just quickly, in the construction sector, there was an organisation already established called the Construction Accord, which had all the key players, vertical, horizontal, residential, scaffolding, clients, all of those parties together already at the table to, to be able to discuss construction and um, issues as a subset of that. There was a group called um, uh, the Health and Safety, CHAZANS, the Health and Safety Forum for Construction, that was able to be activated very, very fast to look internationally, to look at best practice, to bring that back to the construction sector in New Zealand to enable work to continue for essential services at level four. And also, um, as we went through the level, to make sure New Zealand had one standard for those sectors very fast um, to be able to operate at those levels. And that same group was um, supportive of us as we did the work we needed to do to make the public transport system safe at the various levels. So one of the good things that New Zealand had was a network already in place to enable quite fast response around how you deal with immediate health and safety challenges and put practices in place. And that was leveraged really to um, bring in, put in place some very good practices in public transport. So there was a very quick focus put on to hygiene, a joint working group across regional councils, um, ourselves uh, and central government. Uh, and we very quickly put that in place um, and were able to quickly advise the public on the safety practices that were in place. And there was also other agreements made, um, which was public transport was made free for all um, for all essential services through level four. And it's essentially been free in New Zealand all the way through to level one, and even for a portion of the level one, so that we encourage people to continue to use public transport services. But there was other aspects to that. Um, there was a lot of work done to secure PPE and to put in place safety barriers and other things for drivers to ensure they are safe. Over 50% of the driver workforce um, in New Zealand was in the, the age group that was higher risk for COVID. So there's a lot of work done with the transport operators to ensure that group was kept safe and to look at schedules and shift constructs that supported people that needed to stay home to stay home while others covered shifts. So there was a lot of work done uh, in the first stage of lockdown levels four and three to absolutely ensure the safety of the network and those people operating within it and using it. As we've gone down the levels, there's also been other things done in addition to offering free public transport to people, which has been very well received. There's been um, public communication campaigns and campaigns to encourage people to return to public transport. And what we saw at level four was very low usage, as you might anticipate, in a central service situation. By the time we were back down to level three, we were at sort of 50, 40 to 50%. Um, now we're up to 90% in Wellington, 79% uh, in Auckland and sort of mid-70s for Christchurch, which are our big three areas for public transport. So we're really getting back to normal levels, um, in, uh, well, close to. One of the things that's impacting on that is not necessarily... Uh, concern about using public transport actually, but the fact that we still don't have universities working, uh, you know, full time in normal uh, normal classes, uh, that's still been done remotely in New Zealand in many cases. And the other thing is flexible working has meant less people 
are choosing to travel um, into city centres and other places to work. So we actually don't know what the new normal for public transport use is yet because a lot of those changed, I guess, transport behaviours are still to play out post-COVID-19, but we've certainly seen a return to quite high levels of public transport use with many, many steps put in place. The one thing I didn't talk about is we also added in, um, we've moved moved to sort of strengthen contactless uh, by providing free cards uh, for people and other things like that so that people were encouraged to get a card, register their details so that we could contract trace on our public transport as well. Yeah, I mean, that's so great. There's so many initiatives that you've put in place and certainly as well heartwarming to hear that people are coming back to the public transport networks in New Zealand. Um, you know, there's, there's, I guess, always that fear and certainly a conversation that's happening globally around, you know, that people might be more inclined um, to get back into their cars. So that's great to hear. And, and I think, as you've said, you know, no one quite knows what the new normal will look like um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. One of the other key themes that's been a conversation around the world in public transport circles is how transport can be a real enabler and driver for economic recovery and growth. And I wanted to talk to you a bit more about that in the New Zealand context, because certainly I think New Zealand is in a position now to focus you know, on economic recovery from COVID-19. And I know that New Zealand has a significant upgrade program in place in terms of infrastructure projects. I understand it's about $3 billion worth in New Zealand dollars. And it'd be great if you could talk us through these projects and what's involved there and how they'll help stimulate the local economy as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think transport and construction in general uh, will play a key role across the world in stimulating economies post-shutdowns and COVID, and I don't think New Zealand's any different in that regard. The other thing just to note, um, certainly from our experience in New Zealand, is when you have economic shocks, often your construction sector are hit quite hard by that. Um, And if you lose uh, skilled people and you don't have as many houses built, for example, you tend to have a long tail. And in New Zealand, and I think it might be similar in Australia, that long tail has been seen post-historical recessions and shocks in the form of high housing prices and high cost of living for people. So there's lots of good reasons why uh, you would really want to uh, look at retaining your construction sector and stimulating the economy through your construction sector, not only for the immediate term stimulus, but also to manage longer term implications of um, of the of the construction sector not continuing to operate effectively within New Zealand. So within that context, uh, we play a very big part of the vertical, uh, sorry, the horizontal construction sector in New Zealand. We're about 40% of the New Zealand market um, led through Wakakatahi work programs. And we do have, in addition to what we call our National Land Transport Program, which is about $4 billion a year of spending, we do have an additional group of projects that have been in programs that have been initiated. Some of that was slightly before COVID and some of that's occurred during and post-COVID. So one of the things that had happened right before COVID had actually was that the government had announced a $6.8 billion transport investment in New Zealand to get our cities moving. Around uh, $5.8 billion of that is um, sitting with Wakakatahi, uh, or about $5 billion of that is sitting with Wakakatahi to deliver. So uh, the first, the $3 billion you're referring to is the first uh, five projects within the 20 projects that we will be delivering within that $6.8 billion. 
And we have gone to market on those five projects, um, which are all big projects um, in Auckland, Tauranga and Wellington. The Northern Pathway, previously called Sky Path, which is walking and cycling in Auckland um, across the Waitamata Harbour area. Improvements to State Highway 1 in um, Papakura and Drury. Penlink, which is in the Whangaparaa Peninsula and a, a project in Tauranga called the Northern Link, uh, as well as a project in, um, in Wellington, uh, in Hart Valley. So significant program of work in the upgrade program. There's also additional, a small number of what we're calling shovel-ready projects that Waka Katahi is supporting. So absolutely, we've got quite a significant program of work that we will be delivering with our partners um, over the next few years for New Zealand, and it's a critical part of the stimulus for New Zealand. We believe at the very least it would be 800 to 1,000 direct jobs and more than 9,000 indirect jobs created uh, by the projects we've started to initiate now. Wow, that's really significant numbers. And certainly we're seeing a major focus on infrastructure projects, both in Australia and in New Zealand, um, which is, I think, very important as a lever for driving the economic growth, um, but also, I think, presents a very unique challenge that we're seeing across this region, which is around capability and ensuring that you have it, that you have access to the talent and skills that you need, and certainly for the the pipeline of work. and. I know that New Zealand has a lot of skilled migration, as does Australia, and with so many people returning home and unable to go, I guess, go to New Zealand for work opportunities, you know, what are you looking at in terms of how the capability gap might be delivered, um, both for public transport services as well as for staffing the infrastructure projects? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and look, I would like to start by saying, um, you know, Australia in general has been doing very well, like New Zealand has with COVID. So let's keep very hopeful and optimistic that in the very near future, an Australian New Zealand bubble uh, will be able to be created in some form, because I think um, for a whole bunch of reasons, it would be great for Australasia to be able to operate um, as a as a unit, I guess, um, at this time with all of us having huge stimulus that we are initiating and needing to get the right capability. But on the basis that we don't know whether that's going to be the case or not, um, all of us are dealing with the challenge of stimulating our economies in, in an environment where traditional methods of gaining labour, as you say, but also materials, skills, um, insights uh, are, are not necessarily available in the same way that they have been. So... Yes, it's an issue, um, and yes, there is potential for capability gaps or um, challenges in getting labour into the New Zealand market. At this stage, we don't consider that as a significant problem for us as Wakakatahi. Some of our supply chain is more challenged, particularly those parts of our supply chain, those our partners that use offshore labour within their construction projects. But, for example, the C-5 projects that we reinitiated post the COVID lockdown, only one of those projects had a significant amount of foreign labour on it. So we've been able to operate uh, most of the others uh, at full capacity uh, with New Zealand-based people. But that doesn't say that we won't continue to have a problem into the future, particularly with the large um, and, and growing infrastructure and construction um, demand that New Zealand will have as we come out of the stimulus program. So I think we're doing a bunch of things. Um, we're looking to be innovative. There's parts of our processes, and let's just, for example, say planning and design 
that that can be done not necessarily in New Zealand. So parts of the process can, we can still use offshore people to do, and we have to be innovative and thoughtful about how we do that. We're also um, working uh, with other sectors to look at uh, retraining labour or using labour from parts of New Zealand that um, are losing jobs. So an example would be some work we've been doing in the east coast of New Zealand, redeploying forestry workers into renewals program on our roads. So we've done training with one of our key partners downers um, of those workers, and they are now working for us in a range of capacities in our renewals program. Uh, but the demand will still uh, remain a problem and something we're going to have to dynamically manage, working very, very closely with our partners through the next few years. But we're, we're optimistic that we can continue with our pipeline of work, uh, utilising the people and skills we have available, and, and, and also being innovative about how we use people in resources that might be offshore. Yeah, that's great to hear around the ways that you're thinking about how you can approach this issue in a really innovative way. I wanted to ask you just one more question around COVID-19 impacts um, before we talk a bit more broadly about NZTA and, and your career as well. So we often talk about cities a lot, and certainly in, in the UITP circles, you know, where we talk to you know, agencies and authorities and operators in different cities around the world. But I think what's really important to think about as well is the regional areas who might not necessarily always have the access to opportunities and infrastructure anyway. So I wanted to ask you about the COVID-19 impacts or implications for regional New Zealand, you know, both in terms of the projects you're doing and economic stability and any other issues that you might have seen arise from it. Yeah, it's a really good point. And uh, not only is there regional uh, impacts from COVID, but the transport requirements of urban centres are often quite different from the transport requirements of rural or regional areas. Um, Certainly that's the case in New Zealand. So, One size does not fit all in this case. But if you look specifically at COVID-19, the areas of New Zealand that have been most impacted by COVID-19, we have a much higher proportion of our income in New Zealand from tourism than Australia, um, on average, uh, are those parts of New Zealand that relied heavily on international tourism. Um, And so in particular, Queenstown, uh, Rotorua, sort of those parts of New Zealand, Nelson, which is the upper part of the South Island, those parts of New Zealand that had heavy dependence on tourism have certainly been hit very, very hard by COVID. Um, Central Otago would be another one. So it, it is different in different parts of New Zealand. So how is New Zealand responding to that? Well, one of the things, um, and certainly in our space, the, the construction space, is the government launched a shovel-ready projects initiative which they have looked at um, regionally doing those projects and particularly in places where there has been regional impacts. Some of those are transportation projects, but they're also a whole whole range of other projects, vertical residential projects, um, water projects, for example. So there has been quite a lot of attention to, to actually where in New Zealand do jobs need to be created and where would it be good to do infrastructure projects to enable and support that, and we've been part of that. We as Wakakatahi, through our National Land Transport Programme, also have quite a strong regional programme anyway. So we partner with local governments um, to develop regional plans, and those plans then form the basis of our national investment decision-making 
So we do have a pipeline of work already in place for each region of New Zealand. Um, we know that will be absolutely essential to the continued stimulus within those regions. They generally make up quite a significant proportion of local government's work programme, particularly on the capital side, but also, you know, renewals and other things on the OPEX side. So um, we are in both parts, I guess, in terms of the new projects, but also our established pipeline very conscious about the importance of continuing our programme of work as a really foundational aspect to keeping New Zealand regionally going. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right, different impacts by different regions. I think there's a lot of national consciousness about that. I think we've targeted quite a lot of our initiatives at government and at our level to support those parts of New Zealand most impacted. And you know, their work's just kicking off, but we're hopeful that will mitigate the effects of COVID on those communities. Yeah, that's great to hear, Nicole. Uh, and certainly NZTA has to play such an important role in that recovery for those regions and communities. I wanted to talk a bit more about NZTA and its role, and I guess it's transformation really in many ways. So as you said earlier on in this uh, interview, NZTA traditionally has been seen as a roads agency, and I know it's really going through a transformation process and almost like a rebranding exercise as well externally in terms of the fact that the organisation is is much more about transport as an integrated approach. And I know, as you said, that NZTA is also investing in walking and cycling infrastructure. You look after road safety and certainly resilience of the transport system and provide funding for the operations of public transport services in the different cities as well. So my question is really twofold. Can you share some insights on how you're leading the organisation to reshape its focus and develop new ways of working now that the scope has shifted to transport more broadly? Um, and within that, if you could talk about what kind of changes have happened internally, but also what's being done to rebalance the public perceptions of the agency and of transport. Yeah, um, so absolutely. And look, a lot of that is driven by the government policy statement on transport, which really has driven New Zealand to be more multimodal in its transport choices and um, Waka Katahi NZTA has a key role in implementing or delivering that government policy statement for New Zealand. So well before I arrived, the organisation had started to make some significant changes in the way that it thought about its work and how it structured itself to deliver not only multimodal integrated transport investment, but also sustainability outcomes. And when I talk about sustainability outcomes, I'm talking about, you know, labour labor practices, quality practices, procurement practices, health and safety practices, and achieving environmental outcomes for New Zealand. So uh, the organisation I've come into had already started to change um, in line with the government um, expectations in terms of our role uh, to, to be multimodal, sustainable in our decision making. So parts of the things um, that have changed or things that have changed and are continuing to change are our things like our investment decision making framework, which is really how we make decisions on what projects will be prioritised. And that has evolved over the last few years to recognise a much broader range of benefits from an investment realisation perspective. Uh, and that, that enables public transport considerations to be considered alongside roads, for example, or walking and cycling to be considered al alongside rail, for example. So we've done a lot of work on that. We've also sharpened our focus on the difference um, 
between, as I said, urban and rural environments and being a lot more specific about what the different needs are for different communities around urban mobility, but also safety, sustainability, walking and cycling. Because what cities might need is not necessarily what rural New Zealand needs in that regard. We've also worked uh, quite hard in our regulatory side uh, to sort of think about what it looks like to be a modern regulator in an environment where you're looking to be multimodal, integrate, as opposed to being you know, functional in terms of what you do. So our regulatory function includes rail regulation. Um, and so there's opportunities to leverage uh, across uh, both land transport modes, I guess, on-road, but also the other aspects of walking and cycling and rail to really think about how the regulatory system can encourage, support and grow safety as well as other outcomes you might want to achieve in the system. So I think it, we're looking at it in multiple ways. With me coming in, the only additional thing we're really doing at the moment is bringing that together in a revised strategy for the organisation to be absolutely clear about all the roles we play and how we bring those roles together um, to sort of create a better future for New Zealand. That's so great to hear, Nicole. And I think it's fantastic to hear as well around the multimodal integration. And certainly I know that the government in New Zealand uh, seems to be very focused on sustainability outcomes and the urban mobility outcomes. And certainly New Zealand is used as a reference point so much in UITP networks, actually, and particularly in recent times around the work that's being done on innovating the streetscapes and certainly implementing good investment in in walking and cycling infrastructure. So really excited to see what emerges in that space as well. I wanted to ask you now, I guess, a bit more about your professional journey and career. And certainly I know before becoming chief executive at NZTA, you held various both chief executive and senior executive roles in the public and private sector, as you mentioned earlier, and most recently as the chief executive of WorkSafe. I wanted to ask you, What are the lessons or experiences from those previous roles that you're finding pertinent to your current role? Yeah, um, great question. Look, I think you you are your experiences. So I would say everything I experienced in those roles is pertinent to the current role. But if I was to give you a couple of insights of what I think are most useful, one is a lot of the organisations I've worked in have been very complex. If you look at Fonterra, it's one of the world's largest multinationals it's a 21 billion dollar um, op- operation operating in 54 countries around the world with multiple business lines and operation types and so it teaches you about complexity it teaches you about working across countries across systems it teaches you the importance of collaboration and also that you can't operate in hierarchical ways um, in a in, in, the, in the world, you need to, to operate effectively outside your organisational structures, you need to collaborate heavily. So that's one example that complexity, operating in complexity and the tools to operate in complexity, I've certainly got from my past experiences at Fonterra and also in Toll as well. Um, and I think Waka Katahi has absolute aspects of that as I um, come into the organisation. The second big thing for me, it's partly what I've learned, it's also my natural um, place to play, is the importance of relationships and collaboration. So I've always felt, and, and certainly I did this with WorkSafe, that no party in a complex system, and transport is a complex system, if you think health and safety, trying to change health and safety outcomes is very complex and you need to work it 
all levels of the system, that no player can do that by themselves. And so I've always believed the only way you can take this stuff forward is to form groups of common interests to really solve the complex problems um, that are holding these systems back from solving um, or, or moving forward. So uh, we set up a number of CE leadership groups in WorkSafe, for example, which, are, as I said, have ended up being absolutely integral at the time of COVID to solving a number of the immediate challenges New Zealand had around health and safety issues with COVID. And those experiences of forming those groups and then seeing them become incredibly effective some of them were really clunky to begin with and really hard to get going because it was hard to see the common purpose. It wasn't, you know, your traditional groups where you have, you know, a really clear outcome you're working towards and you're sort of aligning people towards that outcome. It was actually we're working in grey and we all have a common interest to improve a transport system or in the case of health and safety, health and safety outcomes for a sector and we all have a bit to bring to the table on how we might want to do that, um, but none of us has the answer. And I think that sort of mindset, which says we've got to be clear about where we're going, but use each other's skills to work out the best way to get there, is incredibly helpful coming into Waka Katahi because we do nothing by ourselves. You know, the um, we partner with others to deliver public transport. We partner with others to build infrastructure and ultimately our consumer or customer uh, is the, the success factor for us, the experience they have and the use of their tools. So I think that's an incredibly valuable thing for my past experience as well. And probably the third thing for me would be uh, having done a lot of my past in health and safety, what I've effectively been doing with organisations is cultural change, deep cultural change in organisations, but also in systems. And the art of doing cultural change is really the art of bringing people, organisation, teams, individuals along with a new way of working and making it part of their why to change. So learning to do that across multiple organisations in multiple environments at multiple levels, whether it's on a site or at an organisational level or at a system level, which is what I've done in my background, how to do cultural change at each of these levels and, and how you make things stick. That's an incredibly valuable skill to have in the background when you come into an organisation that effectively, in addition to building, renewing and maintaining stuff is effectively supporting New Zealand to do massive cultural changes around safety, around how we use transport and how we sustain our country. So I think that's the third area. Yeah, that's so great. Thanks so much, Nicole, for sharing. I think there's some really interesting insights and lessons there for all of us. I wanted to ask you in the wealth of experience that you've had in your career, you know, what's been a personal highlight for you? Uh, yeah, this is going to sound really odd, but I'm a mother of four children. So uh, my children are between 14 and 9 at the moment. So 14, 12, uh, 11 and 9. And my highlight is that I've got four exceptional children who are doing incredibly well, uh, whilst also been able to maintain a really enjoyable and rewarding career um, and that I've been able to balance both of those things with my amazing husband um, because, you know, I think I'm a whole person, not just my career. So um, it is an incredible career. I've done lots of really good things in my work, but as a person, it's also my family, the having four great children and wonderful husband 
that has actually made me a great leader. Um, I learn a lot more from my children than I do from a lot of uh, my work experiences. So I think it is the combination of both of those things. That's my career highlight. Thanks so much, Nicole. Really inspiring to hear and also very generous of you to share that. I think it's a really interesting insight for all of us, right? Because it is the whole person that comes to work every day. Yes, certainly a great way to to look at the work that we do. I wanted to ask you, you know, just kind of one last thing about you know, your career and, and how you've planned it and made your career choices. It's a question I like to ask many of our guests. Uh, do you have a five or 10 year plan or have you just gone along with the opportunities that have rolled your way? Um, I think the answer to the question is when I was younger, I probably did have a five or 10 year plan. I think I've always been quite driven um, and not driven in the stature way but driven to make a difference or make a change to to do something bigger than myself which has always been my driver so I've never had I guess a job in mind or amount of money in mind or anything like that but I've always wanted to find something that has increasingly more impact in what I do and affects more people positively uh, in each change that I make. So that's my barometer on, on you know, what do I do next? Does it have a bigger um, impact? Does it, does it a positively impact on people more than what I've done before? And that's sort of how I make the choices on the next career moves I make. I think in answering those, that question, I, the reason I think it's different from when you're young to you're old, I think everybody tells you you should have a career plan and all those things. And I think it is good to be ambitious and want to do a career plan. But I did say the most personal highlight was the ability to to be able to achieve both you know a wonderful family situation and achieve a very rewarding job and one of the things I would say for women is the obsession with needing to be doing wonderfully in career when for many women but actually for many people having a family and having a highly productive family life and relationships in your family is really important to you that is equally is valuable career aspiration and a very important career choice that we should make available to people because people are really, really good when they're doing the things they love uh, and that they find value in. And that is equally rewarding career for people. Uh, And I think the more we think about it that way, uh, which is that we're all doing jobs, they just look different. Um, And sometimes some are very poorly paid relative to the rest of us. Um, that uh, that we are actually give will, will help people do what they think is really important for them. And once people are doing really important, highly valuable stuff for them, they'll be developing themselves and giving discretionary effort in New Zealand and their, their employer will benefit from that. And that's sort of how I think about it. So not so much a career plan, but enabling people to reach their potential, whatever that, will, whatever that is, is what we, we should all be about. Thanks, Nicole. That's such great reflections, actually, and something for all of us uh, to think about with that. I guess my last question is really around career advice and wanted to ask you, you know, what career advice would you have for any listeners out there, particularly any young female professionals who are in the early years of their career? And perhaps you might want to touch on any career advice that you've been given um, that you thought was most valuable. Yeah, um, another really good question. Uh, Look, my career advice is really get to understand yourself. So it sort of links to my my answer to the question earlier, which was about career plan. I think if you understand yourself, if you understand what drives you, if you understand what makes you happy, 
uh, what makes you fulfilled, then you, you're much quicker and better um, at achieving what you really want. Uh, and w- once you're happy in achieving what you want, you'll be far more successful in your career. So too many people rely on other people to tell them what's right, wrong and right. And that's particularly true for women who have so many competing priorities, um, you know, that they should look after the kids, that they should look after the grandchildren, that they should be great at cleaning the home and they need to also have a, a wonderful career. Um, and uh, it does, the person gets lost in all the demand on them. Uh, so for female um, professionals or any woman that, are, that is looking um, to make a difference in the world, first of all, we shouldn't stifle their ambition. We should absolutely embrace their ambition, whatever it should be, and we shouldn't judge them for their ambition relative to what we might think is right or wrong. That's number one. And number two, um, that really means they need to understand themselves and understand what drives them, what's important to them. And, and that does require a bit of soul searching and really doing a bit of work on yourself to understand from a leadership perspective what drives you, what um, what's important to you, if you can. And the earlier you can do that in your career, I think, the earlier you can understand those drivers for you and be um, able to embrace those, the more successful people will be in general. And I think it's particularly important for women because of the absolutely competing demands on them and the whole range of different feedback they get. So within that context, um, who are the best mentors in my career? They're the ones that have tried to understand me as a person not the person that they would like me to be. The, they've, they've understood what's driven me and then have helped me be true to my to my ambition and my goals. Um, so, you know, really helped me make choices that align with the things that, that, that they can see are really important to me. Because sometimes when you're making those hard choices, and let's just say, for example, you really want to make a big difference to the world, but where you are is paying you a lot more money, that's a hard choice, right? And, you know, sometimes you need really uh, sensible mentoring advice that helps you make the choice in a way that will be most rewarding for you. And ultimately, um, you know, once you're clear on what the most important things are for you, it's easier to make those choices. But sometimes you need help and guidance um, when you're at those points of choice. So the best mentors are not judges of the decisions you make. Um, They're good understanding. They have a good understanding of you, what drives you and are there to help you make you successful in in, in that aspiration. So that's what I would say. Look out for those people. That's who you want. Thanks, Nicole. That's such great advice. And thanks for sharing your reflections as well. I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining this week. It's been so great to hear you talk about how you're tackling the big opportunities and challenges that are in New Zealand. Yeah, not at all. So thank you for asking me. And um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Nicole. I'm Michelle Batsis and thank you for listening. Please join me again soon for another episode of Women Who Move Nations. Thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of Women Who Move Nations. This series is co-produced by Cassandra Kadelka and Lara Rudd with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Please join us each week as we raise the voices of women in the public transport and mobility sector. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.